Well, I want to invite you to turn within your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18 is our text this morning. I want to give a little pastoral admonition, if I could. I am going on vacation next week, but I've left you in good hands. Um, We have Dr. Uh, Crandall, who is going to be with us. He is uh, a really, we have a real opportunity to hear him. I wish I could be here, but I can't be in two places. Um, He is uh, an associate of Ken Ham, and uh, has recently retired, though, from ministries with Answers in Genesis, but he is a resident of Mountaintop, Pennsylvania, and he's going to be here this Sunday filling the pulpit at 11 a.m., I would encourage you to make it a priority to be here to hear him. Um, Also, the following Sunday, uh, Dr. Paul Barreca is going to be here with us. He is uh, from Vineland, New Jersey, uh, pastor of Faith Bible Church, but now he is the new director of FIM, Fellowship International Missions, the board on which I sit as a board member. Um, He is also a speaker at Word of Life in Shroon Lake and also an adjunct teacher there as well. So, both of these speakers I know will be a, uh, a help to us in a ministry here, so I encourage you to, to take advantage of those men. And also, um, I've enjoyed listening to the teaching of Drew Bundy as well. He's going to be here on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. And just encourage you to, to engage in the gifts that come uh, to us and uh, participate in those as well. You'll notice that I scheduled my vacation to occur after the fellowship meal and also before the Sunday school picnic. So, uh, very uh, excited to be involved in all of those things. Let's uh, look at First uh, Thessalonians four thirteen to 18. I'll read it, and then we'll have a word of prayer. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, Even so, through Jesus, excuse me, my eyes are getting older. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring him with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive and who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text that was under the inspiration of your servant Paul. It is for our encouragement, Lord, and so may we be encouraged as we hear these words this morning. May we, in our own increased awareness of your coming, be motivated. May we be longing and looking for your return. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Many believers have been very curious about the end of the world.
and specifically the return of Jesus Christ. You know, the topic of the return of the Lord is not just something for curiosity's sake. It's a pillar. It's a foundation of the gospel itself. The future hope of every believer is mounting and progressing to the return of Jesus Christ, the one who saved us. And so, Paul here addresses this topic as one of three topics. He talked about the importance of increasing our moral purity as we wait. We t- he talked about the importance of increasing our brotherly love. And thirdly, to become more focused upon the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why would he speak on these topics? And in particular, why would he give so much time actually to this topic? In fact, uh, we're not going to be looking at all the details this morning, but the topic goes right down through chapter 5 and ends at verse 11. And there's more word space given to this than the other topics that he's written about so far. Why might he have done that? Well, there are several reasons that this may be the case. It may have been that some had become sorrowfully overwhelmed, sorrowfully overwhelmed as they watched their believing loved ones pass away, and they were anxious about what might be happening to them in the, the waiting for Jesus to return. Some may have been confused regarding what happens to a believer when they die. Some were using maybe the the return of the Lord and its prolonged sense as an excuse for an activity in idleness. In fact, the second epistle of Thessalonians addresses this issue more directly. Some may have been using the return of the Lord for excess and debauchery. In chapter 5, verses 6 through 7, there's kind of a warning here about the importance of vigilance and living for God in advance of his return. Some of these reasons that Paul may have used for writing this range from something along the lines of being, you know, something innocent to that which is more indolent, something that's more costly, more significant. But regardless of the reasons, Paul was wanting to ensure that these disciples of Jesus Christ didn't have a gap in their understanding. He had said that in chapter 3, that he longed to be with them so that he could fill in the gaps in their discipleship. What were they missing? what What was the gap that was here? Well, in their waiting, maybe perhaps some were not longing and looking as they ought to have. Perhaps they were confused. And I think we could ask ourselves the same question. Are we confused as to what's going to happen when Jesus returns? Are there gaps in our own understanding as, as perhaps maybe this could feel like a confusing and overwhelming thought of what happens? Do we have maybe a gap in our own discipleship? And these are questions that we need to ask ourselves going into this text to help us to listen carefully to what's, what's going to be revealed to us through this section. Well, The first question that I want to ask us this morning, do we know what happens? Do we know what happens to our believing loved ones who die? What was it that was confusing here for the first century believers? Is it still confusing for us? Well, believers in the first century believed that there would be a coming kingdom, a literal kingdom on this earth where Jesus ruled and reigned 
from Jerusalem. They anticipated that Jesus was going to come again and set up a kingdom. And this kingdom would last for a thousand years. They believed and anticipated his coming. This view of the end times is sometimes called the historic premillennial view of Jesus' return. Premillennial, pre-1000, that Jesus was going to come again before the reign on, on this earth. Now, there was a little bit of confusion, I believe, in their discipleship. And perhaps Paul had began to teach them what Jesus had told the disciples in the Last Supper in John chapter 14. In fact, the disciples anticipated Jesus to return before the kingdom being set up, but he also told the disciples in John chapter 14 that he would come again and then take them unto himself so that where he was, they might ever be with him. I want you to see this with me. Turn with me to John chapter 14. Put your finger here. We're going to come back to it. But look at John chapter 14 with me. Jesus, before he went to the cross, was preparing them. The disciples were supposing that the kingdom was going to happen right then. They weren't prepared for the cross. And Jesus didn't squelch their thoughts about a coming kingdom. Instead, he showed them that there was another purpose prior to bringing in the kingdom. And Jesus was going to be going away into the presence of the Father and live in the Father's house. But he would come again and he would take Jew and Gentile to be with him in the Father's house. And in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 4, we read these words. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms or mansions. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may also you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. What does this mean? Jesus is revealing to the disciples that before the fulfilled purpose of bringing in a kingdom, he was going to go into heaven to be with his father in his father's house, but then he would come again and collect the disciples and bring them back to be with him in glory in the father's house. So, the people the first century believers were anticipating a coming kingdom, but they were also anticipating Jesus coming and receiving them to be with him. So, what happens, though, if Jesus has, hasn't returned yet and my beloved ones have died, and what happens to them? Are they asleep? What, what happens to them? If you go back to 1 Thessalonians I believe that Paul is addressing this question of uncertainty as to what happens in lieu of Jesus' return. What happens? Well, Paul talks about those who are asleep. He says in chapter 4, verse 13 to 14, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. What does he mean by asleep? What does this mean? Well, Paul is doing what Christians 
for centuries have done, they're borrowing the words of Jesus when Jesus talked about his friend Lazarus, who was simply asleep. Paul is doing the same thing here. He's using a softer word because it implies that they will one day awake. And in Scripture, when you see the word asleep, it's referring to the bodies which are laid into the ground. And as far as the soul is concerned, we go immediately into the presence of God, into the Father's house. Our bodies may be asleep, but our souls are awake in the very presence of Jesus Christ and our Heavenly Father. And so we have nothing to fear. And this is what Paul is communicating. There is nothing to fear. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, Paul describes that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so, not only here will, will we be, our souls will be awake, most theologians talk about, and Paul specifically in 2 Corinthians talks about how that we will be clothed with a glorious body. It's not a resurrected body, and it's a little bit of a mystery, but we'll be clothed. We're not going to be naked, uh, disembodied spirits floating around in, in, the, in the heavenly places, but we're going to be giving something that's suited and appropriate for being in the throne room presence of God. We will be clothed with something. And so he goes on to explain what happens to those beloved ones who have fallen asleep. In verse 14, he says, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And in here we have the promise of resurrection that is inherent in the gospel message itself. See how he describes it in verse 14. He says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So there is inherent in the gospel message, we believe that Jesus rose from the dead, that power is going to transfer to those who believe we also will rise again. And this is a gospel truth. But this also communicates something very important for us. Those bodies which have fallen asleep are going to experience a resurrection when Jesus comes. They will be resurrected and made suitable for life in the future. But there's a question here. What about those who are alive? What happens to them? And so, Paul breaks this down. And so, I think we need to ask ourselves, do we understand what happens when Jesus comes? What happens to believers who are living and maybe and are anticipating, you know, there is going to be a generation that will be here when Jesus returns? What happens? How does this new idea, this idea of John chapter 14, fit into the resurrection when Jesus returns? And so, what Paul is doing here is he's harmonizing two aspects of Christ's return. It may come as a surprise to some of us that this aspect of Jesus' return is a hotly debated in theological circles. And this area that I'm talking about is the rapture of the church. It is a hotly debated, and I don't believe that this is something that has to cause division between believers necessarily, 
but I believe that it's something that has to have clarity of teaching within a local congregation. I believe that there needs to be a harmony within a church in their understanding of the return of Jesus Christ. And this harmonization is connected to what Jesus said in John chapter 14. Before the future kingdom, before the millennium, there is going to be a return of Jesus Christ, and there's also going to be a return of Jesus Christ that occurs before a period of tribulation. We as a church family hold to a pre-tribulation, pre-millennial return of Jesus Christ for the church. And what that simply means is that Jesus is going to return prior to a time period of tribulation and ultimately before the kingdom of God on earth is established. In verse 16, we have the breakdown of Jesus' rapture here of the church. And there are three signs when Jesus comes. In verse 16, it says, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, or simply a shout in some translations. But the idea is a cry of command, a cry of command, or like a military forward ho. There's going to be a, a, a very loud command, and there will be response that will happen when he cries. There's two other things that happen when Jesus returns here to rapture the church. There will be the voice of an archangel that will be heard. Now, the Mormon church has looked at this verse and concluded from this verse that perhaps Jesus is Michael, the archangel. But that is a conflation of details here. These are three separate momentary signs that happen in quick sequence. And I believe personally that when Michael makes the call, he's calling his heavenly host to be prepared for what's going to anticipate and come in the seven years of tribulation and warfare in the heavens over the nation of Israel. There will also be the sound of the trumpet of God that will occur. This trumpet will sound, the cry will peal, the trumpet will blow, and all believers from all over this world will assemble in the sky with, with the Lord Jesus Christ. Some have confused this trumpet as being one of the trumpets in the book of Revelation. Someday we'll get to the book of Revelation. But this trumpet is the last trump for the church. There'll be other trumpets that will occur during the time period of the, revelation, of, of the tribulation. So these signs will happen instantaneously in a moment. Then what will happen? Well, there'll be, revel, there'll be resurrection, but there will also be a translation that occurs. See, the dead in Christ are going to rise first. Their bodies will not sleep until the establishment of the kingdom. The dead in Christ will rise first, Paul says. And so, the rest of us will be caught up and we will together be with the Lord. In a parallel passage, 1 Corinthians 15, 35 through 56, it's a longer passage, but in this passage, Paul explains what's in a little more detail what's happening. In particular, in verse 51 of 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. 
We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. We'll be translated. We'll be translated. So, those who have believed and passed on, they will receive their resurrection, but the rest of us who are alive and remain will be translated. We will be like Moses. We'll be like Enoch. We'll be like um, Elijah who never experienced that, but they were translated into the heavenlies. It's going to be an amazing transformation that will take place, as Paul says, in a twinkling of an eye. And so this is what we call the rapture of the church. The word rapture comes from the Latin translation of the Bible verse here. We don't see that word here, but it's the word that is translated caught up. It's where we get that English word rapture from. But some would say, well, this is like the only verse in the Bible that shows this to be the case. That is not so. This is exactly what Jesus was talking about in John chapter 14, verse 3, where he said, I will come again and I will take you to myself. In a parallel, direct parallel, Jesus is talking about coming and rapturing and catching up and taking them to be where he is. So, in other words here, there is a prior return of Jesus to collect his church prior to the establishment of a millennial kingdom. What happens next? And I'm not going to belabor the time here this morning on this because it's another sermon for another time. But the tribulation is the next event after the rapture of the church. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, there is a descriptor of the terror that occurs during a seven-year period, and I'm going to explain all this in another week. But these two paragraphs in 1 Thessalonians are one of the clearest evidences for a pre-tribulational rapture position. Both paragraphs are connected. Now, some people might say, well, there were no verse references in those days. True. But there were rhetorical devices that were used. In particular, the connection of the two and the sequencing of the two are connected because Paul says in chapter 4, verse 18, he says, therefore encourage one another with these words. He pauses. He goes in to talk about the time of the tribulation, and he connects the two, but showing the sequence of the two by repeating himself in verse 11. He says, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you have been doing. And so he's connecting these two thoughts, and there's a sequence between the two. And this is one of the strongest um, arguments for a pre-tribulational, premillennial return of Jesus Christ. And so, when the Lord returns, he will collect his church so that we do not bear the wrath reserved for the world. There will be a time in which people will cry peace, and there will be sudden destruction will fall upon them. And it's going to come like a thief in the night. The wrath of God will be poured out upon the earth, and those who put their trust in Jesus Christ, whether awake or asleep, are going to be spared from all of this. And you can see a little picture there of what I've been talking about over the last little while. 
During this time, God is going to bring, the, bring to faith many within the nation of Israel. But the horror that is occurring on this earth will cause people to crawl into the caves and ask God to cause those caves and rocks to fall upon them. It's a terrifying time. But it is a real time that's going to be coming. So, Paul's talking about this. And hopefully through this, we're having a greater understanding of the events that are going to be occurring over the next little while. But there's an application question here that I need to ask here at the end. Are we longing and looking for the coming of Jesus Christ? There's two potential problems with that statement and that question. It's possible to be looking without longing. It's also possibly longing, but not looking. And look, longing for the wrong thing. Are we looking without longing? I mean, all my life I have heard teaching along these lines of the rapture of the church and you know, the world empires and the predictions of Daniel and the tribulation and all of these details. And, and curiosity is something there significant, but curiosity can, it can kill the cat. I mean, we get so caught up in the details that we miss the point that Jesus is coming for you. He's coming for me. We lose the personal. I mean, we can, we can get into that scientific abstraction and it just doesn't, doesn't touch the heart like it should. And, and this should make a significant difference in our lives. It should make a significant difference, not just like a terror of anxious anticipation. What I'm talking about here is, is an anxious appreciation for our Savior who came and died for us. I mean, some of us, we've been told all of our lives that Jesus loves me. Do we really believe that Jesus loves me? I mean, do we believe that he loves us so much that he's coming again for us? That's going to make a difference in our lives if we believe that Jesus is coming for us. It's going to make a difference in how we pursue moral purity in our lives. It's going to make a difference in how we, we love one another. If we truly believe that Jesus is coming again, what difference that could make? It might be that some of us are maybe looking without longing for his return, but it may also mean that we are at times longing for the wrong things. Maybe we're longing for this world. Recently, Abby and I have been watching a British murder mystery off and on. And in one episode there was a depiction of a couple who called themselves born again. And given the cultural disdain that I know is in Britain for Christianity, I was on the edge of my seat and I said to Abby, you know what? One of these Christians is going to commit the murder. Like, that's just what's going to happen. They're going to depict it that way. But as the drama unfolded, neither Christian did it. But they depicted these Christians as being obsessed with fear, 
greedy, covetousness, covetous, deceitful, and obsessive. And on the one hand, as I'm sitting there watching it, I'm like, ah, this is so frustrating. Why are they depicting us that way? On the other hand, I was thinking, what if that's the way it really is? Are Christians like that? I recently started reading also a biography of Harry S. Truman, present after FDR. He grew up in Missouri, in Missouri, during the golden age of American agriculture. He also grew up in the age in which evangelical morality was well established in America. When we say the good old days, it's kind of the time period that we talk about sometimes without even knowing it. But during the height of morality in America, Harry learned to hate religious hypocrisy. As a young man, he worked for a drugstore and In the afternoon hours on Sunday, he would often work there, but sometimes he was called in in the morning when his employer couldn't be there for those who would show up. The druggist's drugstore not only supplied things for the community that were of necessity, but he realized that it also supplied some things that were of non-necessity. And he noticed the hypocrisies of apparent citizens in the community who were, who were, you know, known for their moral rectitudes, and they wore high hats, and they wanted to be seen. And this is what he said. I'm going to let him speak in his own words. He said this. This is President Truman, speaking from memory of his childhood. He said, in a little closet under the prescription case, which faced the front and shut off the view of the back end of the store, was an assortment of whiskey bottles. In the, in the morning, sometimes before Mr. Clinton arrived, the good church members and anti-saloon leaguers would come in for their early morning drink behind the prescription case at 10 cents an ounce. They would wipe their mouths, peep through the observation hole in the front of the case, and then depart. This procedure gave a 14-year-old boy quite a viewpoint of the public front of leading citizens and the amen corner praying churchmen. That's devastating. He says, far bet it were the tough old birds around town who bought a proper drink in a real saloon regardless of the appearance. Are we looking and longing for the return of Jesus Christ? Or are we looking for this world? What is it that we're, we're looking for? Are we longing and looking for Jesus? You know, no one knows the day of the return of Jesus Christ, but he is coming. He's coming again. I mean, how do we stay engaged? How do we stay ready, looking and longing for Jesus Christ? You know, it's a confirmation that you are born again if you are in your heart looking for his return. But ultimately, to long for the return of Christ has something to do with the heart, doesn't it? How do you increase that longing? When Abby and I were engaged, dating, there were seasons where we couldn't be together. 
We couldn't be together, but we would write to one another. And when we wrote to one another, you know what we did? We were, this is embarrassing. <laughs> we, would, we would gush over how much we loved each other, right? Hoping that somehow that would kind of knit the heart so that the heart wouldn't wander. And that's the same way it is with Jesus Christ. We knit our hearts through the love that he has displayed to us and that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. We remind ourselves of the love of God. And that love that pulled us into relationship with him will not forsake us. He's coming again. He's coming again. And you stay in a state of longing as you meditate upon the glorious message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the fuel that pushes one towards holiness. We, remember, we, we, we look at texts of Scripture and we, we marvel over them. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. I didn't do anything. Jesus saved me. He loved me so dearly. And then our hearts sing, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. In short, it's a devotional life. The return of the Lord Jesus Christ is, is dear to our hearts when we have a devotional life and appreciation and love for him. Not only we, we surround ourselves with brothers and sisters who, who remind us not to lose hope and look forward to his return. Encourage one another with these words, he says. You know, when you don't want to be with other believers, that's when you need to be with other believers. He says, encourage one another with these words. Build one another up. Don't let the, the arms get slack. Look, long for the return of Jesus Christ. And may we, through our longing, anticipate it, but yet grow in our holiness and grow in love for him. And may this also produce a great endurance so that when he comes, he will find faith upon the earth.